Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're reviewing some of the legislation that came out of the recently concluded session of the Utah Legislature. And we'll look to the future as well. Later in this hour, we'll talk with House Speaker Brad Wilson. And uh, we'll also be talking with Representative Jennifer Daly Provost, Democrat from Salt Lake City. But, uh, first, we bring on the Senate Majority Whip, Ann Milner. Welcome back to the program, Senator Milner. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. For people who don't know you, you're in higher education, right? Associated with Weaver State, are you? I am. Yeah. That's true. I'm teaching at Weaver State University. And been in the Senate, uh, what, five-ish years or something? Seven, six uh, or seven? This is actually, this was my eighth session. Eighth session, okay. Um, well, let me just ask a general question before we get into some of the specifics, uh, the legislation that you worked on. Uh, from your point of view, how did the session go? Anything you're especially proud of? I think this was um, because there was such a mix of both uh, of federal money um, blended into this session that and making sure that that money was used as the federal guidelines required um, made this session. I mean, while we were able to invest in what I think are important in terms of some generational projects around water um, development, water conservation, uh, transportation, education, et cetera. Um, there were, you know, it was also a more complex session than normal. Mm. Uh, complex because of funding? Yeah, yes, because mm. funding is, um, there's money coming from different streams and there's, you have to use certain money in different ways, et cetera, depending on what the federal guidelines laid out for us. And while it was really important in that, I think it allows us to um, be able to invest in some of those generational projects uh, using federal money versus state dollars, um, making sure we did that appropriately and consistently and conservatively was important. Mm. Um understand you were part of a negotiating team which is looking into uh, uh, passing out of the House and Senate a constitutional amendment which would change uh, funding. Um, uh, tell me about that. So uh, a couple of years ago, um, as we tried to, I mean, Utah has this in, in really interesting anomaly in that we have an income tax fund, which we in the past have totally dedicated to education. And um, we also then have um, a general fund, which is largely sales tax and, and a few other things. And then we have a transportation user fee, which is the gas tax. And so we have focused on using, um, I mean, obviously the gas tax all goes to transportation projects. Um, but the difficulty is that uh, from the legislative perspective, it can be difficult to make sure that we're funding all the needs in the state. So we can fund income tax, can fund trans, uh, education, and then we passed a constitutional amendment a couple of years ago that was supported by the people to in increase that so we could support children and people with disabilities. But everything else that we fund in this state is funded through general funds, uh, largely sales tax dollars. And the challenge is that our needs are growing in things like um, public safety, um, some of our programs to um, 
support um, other needs of our state and figuring out how do we balance um, making sure that we can meet the needs in, in those other areas as well as education um, becomes challenging at times because income tax is growing faster than sales tax. So sales tax growth is not increasing with the needs that we have to fund kind of basic services of government, including things like public safety. So um, th- th- this uh, stalled, I guess, why did it stall this time around? Uh, we probably just didn't have sufficient time to, um, to to really figure out how to do it in the right way. We needed. We realized we needed to be able to run some models because we did this a couple of years ago, feeling like it would provide us with kind of about of a decade um, to before we would kind of have this problem again. And the reality is just based on some of the things that have happened during the pandemic and funding over the last couple of years, we found ourselves challenged by this yet again. Um, two years later, but we want to make sure when we do it next time that we get it right and we can run the economic models that need to be run um, to be able to say, how do we increase the flexibility while still protecting and stabilizing education? Because what I do think came out of the prior uh, amendment to um, legislation is that we also um, put in place a formula that would grow, stabilize, and protect public education funding for the future. And through that process, we are making education decisions, I think, in a way that allows us to make sure we're prioritizing funding for education. I know with my constituency group. Um, every year when I say what's your top priority for funding, it's always education. And I think um, the last two years ago when we did this, um, it really has been something that has strongly supported uh, public education because we now have a funding formula that we didn't have before. Kind of had this earmark for revenue, but not a funding formula to really um, support public education funding consistently. It also established a uh, rainy day fund, uh, so um, an ongoing rainy day fund that we would kind of save during good times. And then when there were bad times, we'd be able to pull from that ongoing uh, rainy day fund not to have to uh, cut public education. And if you look at this over 20 years, uh, where public education has generally stumbled is when we've had downturns and we had to cut their budget. And it has taken many times, three, four, or five years to get them back to where they were. So if we can mitigate those downturns with this ongoing rainy day fund, I think it helps us put us in a much better place to support uh, long-term funding growth for public education. You were a, uh, a sponsor of uh, House Bill 162, uh, would provide free period products in all K-12 through uh, schools and charters. Uh, why, why did you sign on to this one? Because I think it's important. Um, it's 
kind of like um, if you're a young woman, um, having access to those products in a restroom facility is kind of like toilet paper. And we need to make sure that our young women um, and young girls um, who are having periods don't find themselves in a place where they don't have access to products that they need at the right time. It can be extremely embarrassing. It can cause students to leave school, et cetera. And it's just a very basic product um, that we need to provide for our school children in, in a school restroom facility. Uh, some some girls can't afford it, uh, I'm guessing, as well. That's probably, yes, we know that that's, that's a challenge uh, for some girls and that we need to make sure that we're providing it for everyone. Um, and as I said, it's just kind of like toilet paper. It's kind of a basic necessity um, that we need to have available in our restrooms. Yeah. You're quoted as, um, uh, well, you're quoted in a Salt Lake Tribune article, uh, commenting on uh, Senate Bill 257, which was uh, you didn't pass out. This is uh, Senator John Johnson, which would, uh, uh, for, if a Utah teacher talked about divisive concepts, quote unquote, that would trigger an investigation into their licenses. Um, what were your thoughts on that bill? Well, I just raised some questions to Senator Johnson. The bill came out at the end of the session, and um, it. Probably from my standpoint, we needed to be thoughtful about that and look at, I I teach at the university and maybe I'm teaching, I don't know, health economics concepts or a health policy concept. Sometimes when I teach it, students will hear something two different, two different students will hear something two different ways. And even though it's fact-based, here's what we know about that, here's the pros and the cons, students still may hear things in different ways. And so finding, uh, it it felt like we were jumping to um, uh, make past the point that we were providing an opportunity um, for our students and um, to make sure that they were actually hearing what teachers were saying, um, but it wasn't an interpretation. And I, I just worried about how stringent the bill was. And the sponsor acknowledged that it probably needed some work. Mm-hmm. So we may see this again next uh, next time around. Um, anything else you'd like to say here at the end of our conversation about the session? No, I think it was, um, you know, a session where we made progress and infrastructure, we, we put uh, money in transportation, we put money in water projects, we put money um, into education itself. Um, we did put money into our outdoor recreation and our state parks. We all know that everyone here, that's really important to them to make sure um, that we're doing well and that we have plenty of places for our families to go out and to play. Um, and at the same time, try to put things in place um, that would support our citizenry. And at the same time, we did tax cuts. We did close to a $200 million tax cut that will impact every single individual in this state. Well, we've been talking with uh, Senate Minority Whip Ann Milner. Uh, Senator Milner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, later in this hour, we'll be talking with the House Speaker, uh, Brad Wilson. Uh, following a brief break, we will be bringing on Representative De- Jennifer Daly Provost. Hope you stay with us. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are reviewing some of the legislation that came out of the recently concluded session of the Utah Legislature. We're looking to the future as well. Uh, we just there talked with uh, Senator Ann Milner. Later, we'll be talking with House Speaker Brad Wilson. Right now, we bring in Representative Jennifer Daly Provost, Democrat from uh, Salt Lake City. Representative Daly Provost, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, uh, just a, I guess an overall view. What uh, What are you most proud of uh, out of this session? Well, uh, I had a couple of bills that I was able to sponsor that were the culmination of several years of work, um, one ensuring robust, uh, comprehensive medical ac- medical care access for individuals who are in the incarceration system. And I know that may not sound like a huge win to a lot of people, but given the constitutional obligation that we have um, for a population that is by de- definition um, vulnerable and somebody we want to make sure um, is given the best opportunities they have to um, to recover their lives after their um, time in the county jails. Um, that, that's best for families and for the the state as a whole. And then my um, my other um, top priority this year was the creation of a disability of the ombudsman, um, an ombudsman for the dis- people with disabilities in the state of Utah to help coordinate services because we know that um, lack of access is one of the biggest barriers to helping people um, with disabilities and their families to thrive and to um, live their best lives that they can. And so those were both uh, several years' worth of work and um, came at came with a lot of collaboration and help from a lot of my legislative colleagues. And so the, those two passed. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the, the ombudsman. What what would this position do? So there there are a couple of key goals. Number one is to make sure that um, that people who access resources for disabilities have a way to make sure that all of the pieces are fitting together correctly. That there's not a la- uh, a loss of efficiency in resources being duplicated in different areas. To make sure that the pieces all fit together. For example, if you're an individual in a wheelchair and need assistance with um, with food that you've got access to both of those resources, you know, transportation, getting to and from, and then also getting all the meals and the healthy um, access that you need and making sure that those fit together. Children with disabilities having access to the education opportunities they need and transportation and the parents don't have to spend, you know, the basically a full-time full-time jobs worth of hours um, just trying to make sure that their child has what they need um, to survive you know the, the the things that we the most of us take for granted on an everyday basis simple things like uh, you know that something that might be simple for most of us a five-page application may be a barrier um, an insurmountable barrier to access to life critical resources for somebody with disabilities and so the the ombudsman would would help make sure that those resources are coordinated, that people have the assistance that they need to access the resources. But also the other big key piece to that is to make sure that if um, 
if laws, state and federal laws, are not being followed with regard to access for people, um, that the ombudsman would engage those entities to um, to remind them that there are laws that they had to that have to be followed, like the federal ADA statutes um, and and state versions of the of Americans with this. There's a there's a state statute. Um, that complements federal laws for people with disabilities, and the ombudsman would have an, an opportunity to um, to try to facilitate um, those those failures in observing current law. And the last piece would be um, to give the ombudsman's office an opportunity to make recommendations, policy recommendations, to the state legislature on how um, laws might be strengthened in order to improve access for people with disabilities and their families. Um, understand you were among uh, several legislators who uh, were running bills and amendments on uh, in the area of medical cannabis. Uh, tell me about yes. uh, what, what you ran. So that there was a three-piece um, package of legislation. There were two Senate bills, Senator Eskimias and Senator Vickers bills for the medical cannabis piece, and then the third bill was to clean up and update statute for industrial hemp and CBD. There's been a working group of legislators. We've been working together for nearly four years now. Um, after the session's over, when we when we work with the Department of Health, Department of Agriculture, and um, advocates in the medical cannabis space to examine what's working and what isn't working. It's an ongoing year-round conversation and every year we we have these long meetings and discussions about um, what needs to be improved what the failures are what the opportunities are and how we need to adjust as the the science and the medicine around medical cannabis and hemp and CBD changes and so uh, those three pieces of legislation all did different things um, but ultimately fit together so that they could coordinate and allow the state or state entities to continue to do their job in in regulating and managing the cannabis and hemp industries so that uh, patients and consumers have safe access to effective products and that our our cannabis program um, continues to become stronger. I just have a couple of minutes here. I wonder if you'd put your finger on the pulse of uh, in uh, of your constituents in your district. What uh, what are the big concerns right now? So a lot of the a lot of it comes down to education, to environmental issues. Air quality is a really big concern for um, the people who live in in my downtown Salt Lake City district. And you know, I think that we we had a lot of we made a lot of progress this year on. Um, on water issues, especially considering the mega drought that we're in, um, paying attention to the impending catastrophe if if we continue to lose the Great Salt Lake. And so there was really good across the aisle bipartisan uh, support and work for really meaningful change in regard to that. Um, there is still concern around some tax policy um, with regard to how we fund state education and conversation about changes in the Constitution that would um, seek to eliminate the earmark uh, for public education. We did have uh, a significant tax cut this year. Um, I was 
not initially a big fan of the tax cut, nor were many of the people in my district, simply because the for the average family in the state of Utah, that income tax cut would not does not create a, a really meaningful change. It doesn't significantly impact the standard of living for the average Utah family. And for lower income people, there's no change at all. I did ultimately vote for it, though, because um, because of the EITC and the decrease in the tax on Social Security and the earned income tax credit is one of the most meaningful ways that lower-income families can really take advantage of opportunities to lift themselves and their families out of poverty. It's one of the, the best tools we know of um, to make a, a true lasting difference and to break the cycle of intergeneration, intergenerational poverty, which is a huge drag on both families and on the economy. And that was the opportunity to be able to vote for an EITC was one that I didn't want to miss. And so I was really, really glad that in the conversations about that tax bill, um, that there was, there was good progress on policy issues that I and my colleagues on the Democratic side have been, um, have been having and trying to push for decades now. Well, we appreciate you taking some time. We've been talking uh, on this part of the program with uh, Representative uh, Jennifer Daly Provost, Democrat from Salt Lake City. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Uh, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, Representative uh, Brad Wilson. He's the Speaker of the House. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Today we're reviewing some of the legislation that came out of the recently concluded session of the Utah Legislature and looking to the future. And we have uh, been speaking with Representative uh, Jennifer Daly Provost, Democrat from Salt Lake City, the Senate Majority Whip, and Milner. And now a conversation with the House Speaker, Representative Brad Wilson. Well, I wanted to start uh, first with Ukraine because all on all of our minds, um, just a, a devastating situation there. First of all, your your general thoughts uh, about what's going on? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate the question. I think we all get up every day and our hearts are broken a little bit more by watching what's happening over there to those people, and and uh, of course, it's having an impact all across the globe, including here in Utah. We've been touched uh, by Ukraine, I think, deeply in the state, and uh, there's a lot of uh, citizens and uh, and families that have connections uh, from Ukraine and in Ukraine, as well as, of course, people from Ukraine living here. And Rosan Pesher uh, lived over there for a few years. His wife is from there and had really interesting conversations with him about uh, his in-laws trying to get out of the country safely and and the uh, just the devastation over there. And we actually have another representative who's adopted two children uh, from Ukraine. So it's uh, it's very personal to everyone, and I, I think that uh, you know I, I hope that our leaders in Washington D.C. can start to get a little bit more on the same page relative to our strategy and approach. There, uh, there's some things that they seem to be working well on, but there's some disagreement on others, and and obviously it's a tricky situation. Um, you know, as a state lawmaker, uh, we we try to figure out things we can do, and we, we've done a number of things to show solidarity with Ukraine and and also to try to provide support. Uh, but it is going to have an impact, and it's already having an impact on the everyday lives of Utahns, and that's also a concern. Um, there's a, a large concern we have generally about inflation, and uh, the war in Ukraine is, 
is adding more inflation uh, to the lives of everyday Utahns, and and so it's impacting all of us. So what what do you think, folks? What are you hearing from constituents? They they support sanctions and other things, which which may end up uh, you know causing some economic pain at home. Yeah, I, I think most Utahns, at least that I've talked with, understand the value of sanctions. Uh, it's a it, it does impact us. Uh, it, it is a a role that we can play to help support uh, the war efforts. Um, I, I think time will tell, uh, depending on how long this this lasts, uh, what the implications are uh, for for Utahns and, and how much it impacts their lives. But uh, you know, I, I I think about my children. I've got my my kids are kind of all ready to kind of leave the nest here in the next few years. Our youngest is seventeen. Our oldest is in her early twenties, and and uh, they've never really seen anything quite like this before. And uh, so there's fear, uh, there's impact, uh, and, and there's trying to figure out what we can do. And I think everyone's trying to work through all that together. I noticed that uh, Governor Cox issued an order, um, says effective immediately all Russian-made products removed from state-run liquor stores. He's going to review all state procurements. Of course, this is more on a national level, but uh, I, I guess by this there are some things that the uh, state government can do. Yeah, there is. Uh, the Senate president and the governor and I talked, and it's all a blur now. I think it was maybe three Saturdays ago uh, about about doing this, and, and also at the same time actually elevating the Ukrainian flag over the Capitol. And, uh, of course, we were supportive of that. Uh, it's a small thing that uh, we can do, but seems like an important, important thing. And uh, we're working with Miles Hansen at the World Trade Center uh, as well to to see you know what kind of impact this is having uh, on businesses in Utah. And are there other things that we can do as a state uh, to to support the efforts in a in a productive way? And so we're, we're we're keeping at it. But the biggest concern everyone has is still the humanitarian need. And and I will just say this: it's a little frustrating. Uh, one of the things that we're still trying to figure out is why we can't get the State Department to more easily issue visas for refugees. Uh, Utah has a history of uh, taking in refugees and supporting them. Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainians that would like to be here in Utah that have family here, and we can't get them here. And hopefully our federal delegation can help facilitate some of that in the coming weeks. What, uh, finally, in Ukraine, what, uh, what would you say yes people do, I guess, to select an organization, get money to them for humanitarian purposes? What uh, what to do? Yeah, yeah, I would suggest that um, I, there's um, there's a number of organizations, um, including the Larry H. Miller uh, Company, partnering with Intermountain Healthcare and some other companies that uh, has a great effort going on right now to raise money and supplies. Of course, we all have our favorite charities that uh, we can donate to, um, and and then I I just think I'm, it should be in our prayers, uh, and it also should be something that uh, we look for other opportunities just to serve each other in the state. Because I think we've been through a lot the last few years, and and now this, uh, it's amazing how quickly things swing. Uh, it was just eight weeks ago that we were as a state, worried about this tsunami of Omicron, and it was growing uh, in prevalence. That's receded, and now we're in uh, a war uh, in Europe, and 
And uh, people have been through a lot, and we just need to have a lot of grace with each other. Hmm. I'll talk a bit about the Great Salt Lake. Of course, this is something you've been, uh, you know, alerting your fellow lawmakers to the to the seriousness of the problem. Um, the, the lake's in your district, right? So, so yeah, we... it is. And uh, I'm actually sitting, looking at it right now, at my office window. At least uh, what I can see of it. It's not the same lake it used to be, and. Uh, it is a big concern uh, for our state for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's not just the namesake of our capital city, but it's an important uh, environmental element uh, of our state. It's an important economic element of our state. And, of course, our quality of life is tied to it. And we need to do everything we can to prevent what's happened in other terminal lakes around the world where they dry up, they become desiccated, and it becomes an environmental catastrophe. And I don't use that word lightly, uh, but it could become that uh, if we see the Great Salt Lake dry up. Terminal lakes, uh, because of the way they work at the end of the row, um, they have a lot of minerals and metals in them. And uh, when those metals are covered up with water, it doesn't matter. But when the water's gone and it's dry and a wind comes in, you kick all those hazardous, toxic metals and uh, other substances into the air, and it's a, a big, big health problem for people. And none of us want to live uh, anywhere in northern Utah uh, if the Great Salt Lake dries up, and I don't know if we even could. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got to uh, act. The good news is I think we've acted quickly enough that uh, with some consistent and uh, focused efforts, uh, we can absolutely uh, deal with this in a, in a productive way, but uh, we, we do have to be focused on it. We can't, uh, can't let up. So we did some really important things this session, probably a decade, maybe, maybe even more of a decade's worth of work on the Great Salt Lake just in one legislative session. I'm really proud of my colleagues for the work that uh, they did. A lot of resources, uh, a lot of money, uh, a lot of change of policy, all designed to help facilitate more water flowing into the Great Salt Lake and improving the quality of the water uh, as well. Tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, is some $40 million, right? Um, as you mentioned, uh, improving water flow into the lake, um, understand improving, restoring some wetlands and habitats, uh, conducting studies that's going to be happening? Yeah, it's really a holistic approach. Kind of the headlines are, of course, there's some some money going into the lake itself. Uh, I only ran one bill. As speaker, I usually don't run any bills, but I did run a bill this session creating a, a water trust. Uh, we funded it initially with $40 million. Um, we'll get some conservation groups that will end up running that trust. And um, the idea is to improve water flows in the watershed and quality of the water going into the lake. But they'll also be able, one of the charges we have of these groups is to go down and pull down other federal and private money um, to help deal with that. But there was a lot more we did besides the bill that I ran. Um, Close to half a billion dollars of investment went into water this session. I mean, (laughs) there's never been anything like that in the state's history. Uh, $250 million into secondary water metering. Uh, That that alone uh, will create and save a tremendous amount of water uh, that can flow into the Great Salt Lake. Uh, we we believe data shows that uh, just by metering, not even charging, uh, 
more for more water use, but just by giving people good information about how much water they're using uh, in their yards, uh, consumption drops 20 to 30 percent. That's a lot of water. Um, we also uh, put in place a significant program to incentivize the agricultural industry, in particular farmers, uh, to, uh, to use less water. And uh, there's still the lion's share use of the water in the state. And so there's a high return on investment there. Um, and I can go on and on. There's probably another 10 things we did relative to water conservation and supporting water, not just in, by the way, the Great Salt Lake, but in other water uh, uses we have and other big lakes we have around the state, including Utah Lake. So, so it was absolutely the year for water. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Utah Rivers Council, I noticed, uh, criticized uh, this plan, uh, not doing enough to permanently protect the lake. What do you say? Yeah, well, uh, you know, we, we appreciate everyone's feedback, and um, I, it's a little frustrating, uh, to, to be honest. Uh, I mean, <laughs> to say it's historic would be an understatement of what we did with water, yet, yet uh, you know, criticizing it for not being enough. Well, it's not like we're done. Uh, we'll be back at this next year and the year after, and we needed to get some things started, uh, which we did in a really big way. And uh, I'm not going to let up on it. I know other leaders are not. And so we'll take their feedback. I mean, one of their specific areas of feedback was that uh, a lot of the plans we had relative to um, allowing people to dedicate water shares to the Great Salt Lake was only for 10 years. And some of the other elements only lasted for a, a finite period of time. Well, it doesn't mean we're not going to go back and try to do more of that. It just means we thought that's a good way to get it started. Mm-hmm. So, uh, As you know, water is complicated, right? Uh, there are a lot of competing needs, you know, the people, farms, industry, uh, and growing population. Um, do, you, do you think um, we'll be able to balance all those needs and, you know, supply the lake with the water it needs? Boy, boy, oh boy, water... <laughs> is a very emotionally charged issue uh and uh you know you know that intellectually kind of wading into this space no pun intended but uh it uh it is complicated and and i'll just say this there's this tension that exists and will exist i think forever in the state between uh, water needs uh, our needs to take care of the people that live here and uh, the need and it is a need i think for our state to continue to grow so our kids and grandkids have a place to live near us and have a job there's only one one answer to this we've got to get really good at water conservation and uh there's other things we can do but uh that's going to be a theme uh there's i think two perennial themes that have emerged over the last few years in the state um housing and water they're going to be with us forever and um, we've just got to recognize that and uh, make it a part of our rhythm as we do policy work all across the state all the time seems like the lake is uh, you know is getting a lot of press you know if if, if it were a person and had a problem well you know progress right uh you you took a helicopter tour over you encouraged your colleagues to do so um what what else do you do you think ought to be done to get the word out, or, or do you think it's sufficiently out that the Great Salt Lake needs help? Well, um, 
I think word is out. It's uh, it's interesting. You know, a year or two ago, no one would talk to me about the Great Salt Lake. Um, um, pretty much everywhere I go now, people want to talk about it. So I think I think we accomplished, mission accomplished, in terms of elevating the issue and giving it uh, some attention and putting it top of mind. But um, what, what I see happening is we're going to learn a lot over the next year or two with all the things we just put in place. Some of them will work better than expected. Some probably won't work as well as we'd hoped. And um, so our job as policymakers is to take that information, study it, and then adjust our strategy and set a new direction. And so that's what we will keep doing. And that's really what the legislature does when it's at its best, right? We, we pass policy, we put, play, put in place uh, budgetary programs and other things, and then we come back and evaluate and uh, adjust, and, and we'll absolutely be doing that uh, with our water needs uh, in, in the state. I, specifically, I think that um, you will see us uh, looking for ways to increase conservation uh, even more, You'll see us looking for ways to find um, how can we get more water uh, flowing to the Great Salt Lake that's that's not being used. Um, I'll give you an example. We've had historically a use it or lose it um, requirement on water that people own. And uh, if you don't use it, then you don't get to keep those water shares. Well, that's ridiculous in a desert. <laughs> um, if you don't want to use it, you don't need to use it let it flow to the Great Salt Lake. Uh, and so we're, we're going to keep working on that and raising people's awareness uh, of that and, uh, you know, much, a bunch of other things. You mentioned Utah Lake. Uh, the Utah Lake's got its own problems. Um, what, uh, what do you think should be done there? Anything come out of the legislature? Yeah, um, there are different problems. <laughs> but there are challenges there. Um, and it, it's more of a water quality issue at Utah Lake. And so we actually uh, did something, I think, really significant. We put about $30 million into Utah Lake uh, for water quality improvements, uh, as, as well as programs to understand kind of where the quality issues are coming from in more detail. But we also funded uh, the Utah Lake Authority um, uh, with some ongoing money so that now prospectively there is a group that is focused on those quality issues uh, down there. And um, they have an ongoing funding stream that they can use uh, to, to fund programs and, and put in place some of the infrastructure changes that need to, to be put in place to get the water quality better. Um, very disconnected from the other conversation that's happening relative to kind of redevelopment and the islands and all that. That's not what we've, we we worked on this session. That's kind of a separate project that a private group is is pursuing, and and uh, we'll watch that closely because we know there's a lot of interest in that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, two really important bodies of water, right, that affect, uh, you know, 80% of the people who live in Utah, Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake. You mentioned housing is the other big issue going forward that we'll have with us. Uh, what what concerns you most about housing? What what solutions are are you most interested in? Well, housing is complicated as well. We're in many ways the victims of our own success here uh, in Utah because so many people want to live here, and and we had people just in droves moving to Utah during the pandemic, fleeing states that were managing it differently than we did. And 
didn't have their schools open, didn't have their economies open. People just wanted to be here. And layer on top of that, we had a housing shortage going into the pandemic. Um, it's a real problem. It's a problem all over the country, but it's much more acute here than almost anywhere else. And um, there's, it's a, there, there's no easy solution, but to understand the problem is very simple. It's simply supply and demand. And uh, we didn't have enough supply pre-pandemic. We really don't have enough supply uh, post-pandemic. I guess you could say we're post-pandemic. At least I hope we are. And uh, so that's the solution. Um, and um, it, it, it's really tricky. Uh, but uh, we, we put in place um, a number of things this session to help deal with that. One is some uh, a lot of money went into... Uh, programs for deeply affordable housing, as well as housing preservation to keep some of our lower price point apartments and homes in the market. Because what happens right now is a lot of those types of projects are being bought up by developers, and they go in and invest a bunch of money in them. And then they raise the rental rates on the apartments, for example, to market rate. Well, you lose a whole bunch then of affordable housing when that occurs. So we put money into the Housing Preservation Fund last year and this year, uh, over $50 million to, to help keep affordable housing units available for people on the lower end. Um, for market rate housing, whether it's apartments or single-family homes or townhomes, what we need is we need cities um, to move much quicker. Uh, to approve those projects uh, in a way that they can come to market quicker. Um, that's the, the primary thing that uh, c- can be done relative to that. And we've been chipping away at uh, making those processes more streamlined. And I know the League of Cities and Towns uh, has also been working with their members to try to help facilitate that. And we're seeing some progress. It, quite frankly, it doesn't seem quick enough for me, but uh, we're going to keep focused on it. You uh, tweeted out a, uh, a link to a, a YouTube video, how the 2022 general session impacts you. I guess this is, this is you trying to uh, tell people, hey, here's what we did. What, uh, what, are, some, <laughs> what are some high points do you, you think the legislature did accomplished? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, we, we did. Because at the end of the day, what we do affects individuals and families uh, primarily. And, and so... <sighs> This doesn't really come out in the video, but let me just mention one thing that I think is a really important element to what happened this session. We had over a billion dollars of money from the federal government uh, for COVID relief through the ARPA funds. And uh, despite what people might think, it's not necessarily a good thing for our state budget. And, And the reason I say that is it's not real money. It's money that uh, the federal government has borrowed from our kids and our grandkids, and, uh, and it's debt that we foisted on them. And so we went into the session with that in mind, that uh, if we're going to put that money to use, let's put it to use into programs and needs in our state, that those people that are going to be paying for this debt benefit from it. So... So we invested and put that money into programs uh, that uh, we think will affect generations. Uh, and, and those are things like natural resources, which we've already talked about, transit, 
uh, other transportation funding needs, key infrastructure projects across the state, things that that generation can can benefit from. And then as we went through sort of a normal course of the session, we we did some things that we thought would help a typical, you know, Utah family. In particular, how do we make Utah more affordable? And so uh, a tax cut that every Utah that pays taxes will benefit from. Uh, in particular, those that uh, are on Social Security uh, or on the lower end uh, of the income scale with this earned income tax credit that we passed. We also made it easier for Utahns to get affordable child care uh, by getting some burdensome and, and uh, difficult regulation out of the way so we can have more child care available to people. And, and then uh, a lot of money went into public education. It was a record year. Uh, for the weighted pupil unit. We've never put as much money into the weighted pupil unit as we did this year. Um, Close to $400 million in total of new money went into public education, uh, and that's about a 9% uh, increase. And and there's a lot of really neat things that are kind of embedded uh, in that money, and I'll just highlight a couple of them. One is um, some money for educator professional development time. Our, our poor teachers have been stretched to the limits <laughs> over the last few years. They're amazing. And we wanted to give them a little extra pay and also a little more free time just to just to have time to kind of process the things they need to do. And here's what's amazing. I had a teacher from my district actually come up to me uh, in the hallway one, one morning and say, hey, it really would be great if you could fund these uh, for educator professional days for us, because I actually have some students that if I could just have a little bit more one-on-one time during those days, I could make a big difference. And and what's amazing to me about that is that's actually not what we're asking them to do. I mean, we would love it if they can do that, but we, we weren't actually asking these educators to bring kids in and teach class again those extra days. We wanted them to have prep time and and uh, but you just kind of get a feel for how amazing our teachers are and how much they care about their students and so you know the list goes on and on i just maybe can highlight one other element that i think is fun and important and utahns will benefit from we put in place uh, for the first time in the state's history a fund to create an ongoing revenue stream to build capacity in recreation infrastructure. So how do we build capacity in our state parks so there's more places for people to go camping and hiking? And uh, how do we build more trails for people to go hiking on? And how do we build more infrastructure um, at our lakes and our reservoirs? And how do we get more access to state lands? We've got all these great state lands across the state, or even federal lands, that people could go recreate on, but they can't get to them because there aren't roads to them. And so uh, we love the quality of life here, and we wanted to give Utahns more access to the outdoors. And uh, we've got a fund now that will be putting about $35 million a year into building capacity for for that uh, element of people's lives. And so we're excited about that. Our thanks to uh, House Speaker Brad Wilson for that uh, conversation concluding the program today. And we'll go out, as uh, we do, uh, once per month uh, with the latest She Goes On commentary from Tanya Gibson. 
A black cat walked directly in front of my car. He was in no hurry to get anywhere, casually sauntering and looking me dead in the eye, as if to dare me to disrupt his leisurely pace. My first thought was about his cuteness. My next immediate thought was one of panic. A black cat crossing paths meant bad luck. Superstitions are born in my soul. I've always been superstitious. I remember breaking a mirror in high school and counting out the seven years until it wouldn't have hold on me anymore. I suck in my breath whenever I need to hold a ladder for my husband and find myself doing so on the underside. Umbrellas aren't opened indoors, salt over the shoulder, wishes whispered with stars and eyelashes alike. I watch and wait and look for signs of things. None of these really take hold and cause obsession. None of them take up more of my time than a fleeting thought, usually. But I've tried to notice how often the superstitious is one of the first thoughts to circumstances I encounter, and nearly always it's linked back to childhood and a hope for the future. I carried a rabbit's foot in high school. I loved that thing. I can't quite remember where I got it, but I think it came out of one of those clear plastic domes with a yellow bottom. I want to say that it was a result of a shopping trip outing with my grandmother on our traditional Friday night sleepover, but that doesn't seem quite right. Other than my grandmother, her memory is definitely attached. Nevertheless, one of its claws protruded just a bit from the edge of the foot, and I would find myself fascinated and rubbing it smooth. I also remember being amazed that it still had a claw attached and wondered if that meant anything at all. But childhood before the internet meant questions that couldn't be answered. I hold no illusions that this foot made me lucky whatsoever. I can say with confidence it in fact did not, and probably quite the opposite. But having it was some sort of comfort bridging childhood into being grown, a priceless quality for the 25-cent novelty toy. I can't remember anything else in my life that was so overtly tied to luck. I've never found a four-leaf clover. Elephants, if I'm honest, freak me out just a tiny bit. I'm far too urban to have access to horseshoes, and I'm not certain what I would do with one anyway. Crickets, a sign of luck in some cultures, I've had plenty of, but considering I tipped a bag full of them over in my apartment one time while babysitting a chameleon, I'm not certain if that luck is covered in mine. But I will always help a ladybug on her way with a wish, though I'm not certain that is entirely the same. The only other example I can think of is pennies, though it's debatable if it's my hunger for luck or my frugality that bends my waist to pick them up. I've been wondering if a proclivity to the superstitious has anything to do with personality type or being prone to anxiety or other mood disorders. Not wondering to the point I've done any research at all, but wondering in the way of do claws remaining on a rabbit's foot hold extra luck sort of way. I think it all comes down to the fact that while I'm not a true believer, adjusting plans and planning for the future that is marred by tragedy when these things happen, I also think there may be merit we discount too easily. How does superstition begin and what did it mean? So does that make me a superstition skeptic? A fringe doubter? Maybe it simply makes me normal, toying with the notion of mystical forces beyond our control. Or maybe it makes me someone who has lived and needs an explanation for the good and the bad thrown her way. For now, though, I'm going to hope the black cat that crossed in front of my car was simply enjoying the spring-like temps northern Utah was experiencing that day on her way to finding dinner and ignore the eyes that seemed to puncture my soul. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On.